and then we moved um, to Huntington Beach and I grew up there. Um, so it was always very near the ocean. And Orange Huntington Beach at that time was kind of not quite rural, but it was farmland. And so there were like bean fields around our house and cabbage fields. And as I was growing up, we just watched them get eaten up by housing developments. And now it's all paved over everywhere. <clears throat> But I did spend a lot, a lot of time at the beach. Um, by high school, probably every other day I was there. And that was kind of like my spiritual home, in a sense. Um, <clears throat> so I have an older brother. My brother was born 16 months before me. And then my sister was born 12 months after me. So we're like very close in age. Um, <clears throat> our parents were pretty unhappily married and they split up when I was like eight years old. Um, and so we lived in, we lived with my mom most, almost entirely. Um, and we didn't really have a religious affiliation and I would, my, my dad, um, I'm going to backtrack and tell you my parents' history because I think it helps to understand. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, so my dad was came from Michigan, and he was raised very Catholic, and he went to Catholic schools all the way through college. And my mother was born in Idaho, and her parents had come from Japan, and she was raised sort of Buddhist a little bit, I think, but then Methodist. But by the time we were born, my dad, when I would ask, you know, my folks, because everyone around us seemed to be, have a religious affiliation, <clears throat> mostly Catholic, it seemed. And when I would ask our folks what we believed, um, my dad said, I'm an atheist, which is kind of a strong statement that he knew there was no God. And my mom said that she was an agnostic. And um, <clears throat> so we had nothing really in that, we had in the spiritual domain to guide us. Um, we, yeah, so, and I think we really longed for it. Like my sister and I, we used to kind of hang around the Catholic church, St. Bonaventure as they were letting out, I don't know why, we were in the parking lot with our bikes hanging around. I think we just wanted something. Um, we wanted a connection. And I remember all the kids bought like ID bracelets for school, you know, with your address in case you get lost or something. And everyone had like the Lord's Prayer written on theirs. So I got the Lord's Prayer written on mine, even though I did not know what it meant. Um, but anyway, so I, I did memorize like prayers and try to and say them at nighttime. 
silently and thought that this kind of gave me some sense of a place in the world. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, but we, we didn't go to church. We went to um, Japanese-American stuff in Orange County. There was like the Obon Festival, which was really big and it was pretty great. We went every year. And so that's like to honor the ancestors. And there's, um, I mean, we just loved it because we got to wear kimonos and dance and eat snow cones and have teriyaki bowls. And, you know, it was, it was great. I mean, our mom just went because she wanted to hang out with her Japanese friends. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, everyone was happy. And then we'd go to uh, Little Tokyo in, in LA for Nisei week, um, which was also a really great time. Um, drumming festivals, great food. Um, and yeah, and both my parents were pretty into it, actually. My dad even like had something wrapped around his head and was dancing in a big circle. Um, so that's kind of how I grew up. I was very quiet. Um, but for some reason, one of my nicknames was Giggles because I was always laughing, even though I was very quiet. Um, and school was kind of like my refuge and I was a pretty, I was a good student and <clears throat> my teachers always liked me. So I think that was kind of like my safe space school. Um, and so let's see. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, I don't know. I, I remember being young, like five or six, and being like wondering, and this came up a lot for me as a kid, what's real? And is this real? Is this real? If I close my eyes, do things disappear? Like it really, that um, question bothered me. And <clears throat> I also remember around that age, um, waking up with a nightmare and telling my mom I had a nightmare. And she said, I think I was maybe six or seven. And she said, well, go back to sleep and change the outcome. And I was like, you don't get it. You know, it's a real thing. It's a nightmare. It happened. And so first of all, she's saying it's not a real thing. And secondly, she's saying I should go back to sleep and change the outcome. And I laid there for a long time and I went back to sleep and I really worked on that and I did change the outcome. And it was really um, startling to me. I remember being in the nightmare and kind of like directing it from behind myself, like kind of telling myself that way, you know, just like a director, but being like a few feet back. Um, and so that I did, you know, at times, um, I think also <clears throat> I was very interested in magic and I thought I wasn't sure if magic was real or not. And so I wanted to be a magician. So I was practicing all kinds of magic tricks. I had a ruler that could come out of a wallet. I had linking rings that could do, I could do things with. Um, and I thought that if I just persisted with this magic thing that I would like learn kind of how the world works and how things really work, you know. Um, I actually stuck with that for a few years. <clears throat> and anyway, so um, 
Yeah, so mostly I just, I kind of buried myself in my studies. <clears throat> I was a good student. I was, um, and I like forced myself to get all A's in high school. I went off to college, um, picked a college that was pretty, about as far on the map geographically from my home as one could find. And got there and my idea at that time was that I was, oh, I, I was thinking I was going to be a physician. And I got to college and I was like, oh, there's all these other subjects. Hmm. And like that was like a turning point. And during, you know, we were signing up for classes and I just threw out the whole pre-medical thing. And anyway, went on to major in philosophy. And I was, I, th I liked the, um, questions that were asked in philosophy. And I was particularly interested in like theory of knowledge and how we know what we think we know and what we do with it and how this shapes human behavior and history. And <clears throat> But um, after a couple of years, I was actually kind of disappointed with philosophy. I really didn't feel like I got answers at all. I feel like I just got more clever at asking questions or writing clever papers, you know, and it was, it sort of died for me, but I, I was that far along. So I just finished the major <clears throat> and I was, became much more interested in literature actually, um, which if I had discovered that sooner, maybe I would have majored in that. And I really felt it was kind of like a thrill, um, the way that, good, that excellent writing could capture human experience. It was just, it was pretty stunning to me. Um, so, but I was college. Okay. So I'm sorry, backpedaling a bit. So at age 16, I had, I started to get depressed and I had a lot of episodes of serious depression. Um, so it wasn't until I was like 26 that I got treatment for depression and it was very bad depression. Like where you, you know, like can't peel your eyes off the floor and really can't concentrate, can't think, can't, you know, that sort of thing for months at a time. So I would have like five, 10 month periods of bad depression. Um, so much of my kind of late adolescence, early adulthood was, not always. I mean, I wasn't always depressed. Even I was never, I wasn't always that severely depressed, but much of the time, in fact, I was. So um, it was always a challenge to just like, like I missed a lot of classes. I slept through things. I was always out drinking and talking with people, a lot of drinking. Um, not great grades, but good enough. <clears throat> I didn't have any plan for what to do after college. Um, and, and I sort of got through college by like, I, most of my classes, you wrote papers, it wasn't exams and, you know, it was pre, um, laptop. So you had a typewriter and I would just like, if the paper, if it was 20 page paper was due on May 12th at two o'clock, then I would allow 20 hours back from May 12th. And then I would start writing. And I got actually pretty good at it with a lot of whiteout, but I was just always running on a lot of adrenaline and just kind of got through it that way. Um, 
and this was, I graduated in 85, and everybody was going into banking then. And I, I went to an interview or two, I put on the silly suit, and I couldn't do it. It just, I couldn't make myself do it. So I ended up, it was in Boston, and I went to, I, so I, I stayed in Boston, and um, I signed up with some temp agencies, and it was actually really great. Um, it was kind of like a beginner's mind experience for me. Like every week or even every couple days, they'd send me to a different place in a different part of the city, um, different people, different industry. So I was like at a hotel in a basement, you know, typing out things by um, giant, you know, washing machines. And I was in an accountancy office and I was at a school and I did all these things for. I don't know, several months, and kind of landed at a school, and um, and that felt right to me. Like I wanted, I felt like I should be a teacher. And so I went back to California, um, <clears throat> got a teaching credential, um, and I was able to do uh, my student teaching in England, which was really exciting because I got to travel, and. Um, I traveled when we were done part of the time with my friend and then the rest of the time by myself. And I felt complete, I felt so alive, like unusually alive traveling by myself. Like every moment was amazing and new. Um, Totally broke. I had, I lived off oatmeal and uh, marmalade and stayed in hostels for like $3 a night. Um, but it was amazing and I, it was a wonderful experience. Um, so anyway, I, then I moved to San Francisco and I got a preschool teaching job and then later a second grade teaching job. And I was kind of like working through all these books that I, like I didn't do much in college. Remember I was, you know, just sleeping all the time. And, but I had all these great books, and I actually ended up reading so many of them later, <laughs> a couple of years after college. Um, and I also, like I say, I was very disappointed in philosophy. <clears throat> but it's kind of funny to me now that I, be, I really liked how-to books. Like I discovered how-to books, you know, like how to bake bread. And I would just read it cover to cover and do all these, you know, and bake bread and then moved on to another thing, how how to, I don't know, how to wash a window the right way and get really into that for a while. So how-to books were just amazing to me, like someone's telling me how how to do stuff. It was fun. Um, But I kind of felt like I did not want to be, I knew I didn't want to be a teacher forever, and I knew I didn't want to be an administrator in in the schools. So I decided to... um, I was thinking again about being a phys- becoming a physician, so I went back and did something called a post-baccalaureate where you take pre-med courses um, over like a year. You take a whole pre-med curriculum over 12 months kind of thing. And so I moved to Philadelphia, University of Pennsylvania, had a pre-back, uh, post-back program. And again, I, I like moved there on a one-way ticket and again, really no money, which was kind of the theme of my years, you know, just my paid rent. I would think it was $135 a month. And um, 
I had like a five to ten dollar a week grocery allowance. And but somehow, anyway, I did that. <clears throat> and I loved chemistry, actually. Chemistry amazed me. Um, and I actually thought about dropping the whole pre-med thing and doing chemistry because it just was incredible to me how things happen, like at a molecular and atomic level. Um, it was it was just amazing. Um, but I was pretty far along at that point in the pre-med thing, so I, I stuck with it. <clears throat> Went to medical school in New York City, um, which was great for me. I loved being in New York. It was actually, I think I wanted to be in New York more than I wanted to be in medical school. Um, I did not like the curriculum. It was just like loading tons of information. Um, it was disappointing. Um, I loved embryology, which was, you know, like how an embryo forms, which was just amazing. Again, kind of blew my mind. Um, but I wasn't very interested in the classes. It was pass or fail, luckily. Um, again, I kind of did the minimum. <clears throat> but I uh, was very interested in poetry at this point. And there was a, a poetry group in Manhattan. I was up in the Bronx that met every Friday afternoon. And so I, um, it, it was just a reading group. It was free. You make a donation. And so I could afford it, you know. And uh, so I went down there and I started writing poems most of the time during medical school. And I had finally, you know, there was a big computer in a computer lab so I could write on the computer. So I wrote poems and then I went down on Friday afternoons with this group and read them. And that to me was extremely exciting. That just like awakened a whole different part of my brain, my kind of experience. Um, Anyway, so, and finally, and meanwhile, you know, there's like the depression continues and it was very hard to pass classes with this. So I just always kind of muscling through it. Um, but finally I got treatment for depression, which was amazing to me. I was 26 and I was like, wow, like this is how other people feel all the time. Like I wasn't distracted with this intense suffering you know, like I could, I had a little bit of freedom. Amazed me. Um, and then, yeah, so then I needed to decide what to go into. I was very interested in, um, well, we, we had electives, I remember. There was a book of electives, and there was some in child psychiatry. And I was like, that's a legitimate field, you know, okay, that sounds great. I'm going to do, you know, I got my elective form in right away because I was sure everyone wanted to do electives in child psychiatry. Got it in on time. Of course, nobody else had submitted any elective requests for it. Um, but to me, it was really, really interesting, kind of the inner lives of children and change. Um, and so I was very interested in that. I also got really interested in pediatric neurology and it was kind of a plain time in, as a fourth year student for neurology, I'm sorry, for um, pediatrics, because you do a pediatric residency and then you do neurology fellowship, a peds neurology fellowship, and simultaneously in psychiatry, you do psychiatry and then you do child psychiatry fellowship. And 
I remember I was on the bus um, going to Bellevue, NYU, and I had just been there the week before for pediatric, um, a pediatrics interview, and I'm wearing my little suit, my little outfit, and then I'm on the same exact bus again. I'm going back for the psychiatry interview, and it, and I'm torn, like I'm applying actively for both, in both these fields. And then I, I remember I was sitting on the bus, and I just knew the right thing was psychiatry. And I just kind of said, well, what if that was the right thing, and sat with it, and that that was over. And and so I went into child psychiatry, basically. But um, it's memorable to me just because it was, I couldn't sort it out in my mind. In my mind, I was weighing all these factors, trying to figure it out, you know, um, intellectually. But ultimately, my gut was so strong, and I wasn't really paying attention to it. So once I kind of acknowledged that, um, everything kind of flowed much better. <clears throat> um, I loved living in New York. I, so I was at Bellevue, NYU for four years. I ended up really liking working with adults. So I had gone into psychiatry because I wanted to work with kids, but then adults became really interesting to me. Um, and then I started thinking, you know, maybe I won't do child. Maybe I'll just um, do adult psychiatry. There was a psychoanalytic institute at NYU, and so that was m most of my teachers, and that was kind of the dominant paradigm at that time, and which was great. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. I loved doing psychotherapy. Um, so I ended up staying four years and was probably not going to do child psychiatry. And then we had a lecture. Someone came in and was talking about developmental processes, and I just got so excited again, and I kind of reignited. I remembered why like embryology was so exciting to me. And I remembered, you know, why this process of change, the way humans change, kind of just the mystery of it and um, got me really excited again. So I applied to child psychiatry. I applied late. Um, I ended up matching it at Yale at the Child Study Center, which was really great because it was kind of like the center of where people were doing child psychiatry research and clinical work. And it was just really um, super committed people there, very, very talented people, um, excellent teaching. Um, but the trade-off was you worked really hard, like we were on call every three nights. Um, and it was really busy call. And it was like 80 hours a week kind of thing. Um, so it was pretty grueling. Um, and then I got married the, after my first year. So I had met my husband in New York um, just not long before I moved away, actually, like six months before I moved away. And he was Californian, too. And so we, um, but we met in New York. And then we got married. And he, I was living in New Haven. So he was working in the city. So he was commuting to New Haven, which was really hard. Um, and then the, my second year of fellowship, I, I was thinking about this as I was making these notes, how crazy this was. Like, I ended up, I ran the New York City Marathon. Oh, I got married, then I ran the marathon, and I wrote a book that year. I got pregnant, and then I did my 60, 70 hours a week. And then I finished all of this on June 30th, and then July 1st, I went into labor with my first kid, and she was born the next day. 
And I was, and it's kind of, it's so, it's almost disturbing to me now because it's just so, like, not being in, like, just jamming myself through all these things I felt like I had to do or had committed to in some way. Uh, not having a kid or getting married, but, you know. But that's kind of like the level I was, I was kind of living at at that time, just push, 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 push. And in New York, I think that's how a lot of people in their, you know, everyone my age in other industries, that's how people were. I mean, that's how people were living, it seemed, anyway. Anyway, um, so shortly after that, um, yeah, our daughter was one year old, and we were living in an old Victorian in Connecticut, like a commuter town to the, to New York, and she got her lead level tested at age one, and it was elevated. Um, so that was pretty alarming, and you know, it turns out they had done like a bad renovation on this Victorian, and the lead inspectors came in, or the city inspectors, and they said, I. Actually, I think it was a lead company we had come in, and the guy said, I can see it in this carpet. It was that bad. Um, so we, like, had to move out immediately, and we couldn't take our possessions with us, couldn't take books, couldn't take our kids' stuffed animals. We took some clothes because those could be washed, but, you know, we were terrified. Um, you know, it does brain damage. And so we, we were staying with um, my husband's friends in Brooklyn, they had a place, and they were very happy to move out and be with their girlfriends, so we moved in there. And so we were kind of traumatized, you know. All of our possessions were in Connecticut. We didn't know where to live. We didn't have a place to live. We didn't know what the next step was. Um, I had a couple of jobs in Connecticut. So I was working like two days a week. My husband's working four days a week. We only had one day together. And um, anyway, we're kind of yeah, really just shell-shocked, sort of. And then in the midst of this, 9-11 happened. And so, um, and I happened to have not, I happened to have gone to Connecticut that day. Um, So I was working when it occurred. Um, But that's a whole other chapter that I don't even want to talk about. But um, we were just kind of terrified thereafter. And our a lot of stuff happened. Um, so then we we decided we needed to move back to California. We didn't want to, we couldn't stand, we couldn't, we were like terrified every day. Um, and my husband was working in the city. Um, anyway, so started, you know, thinking about where we can live in California that we don't have to work, you know, 100 hours a week to, afford a mortgage and the notion of Sacramento came up and I applied for a job at UCD and the division chief there had trained at the same place as me and we hit it off and anyway ended up coming here Um, and then my husband his work so he was doing like this um, computer stuff at these intellectual property law firms that they didn't have in California or in Sacramento. So there was like no, there really wasn't a role for him. We didn't care. We just were fleeing basically New York and Connecticut. Actually our moving day out of Brooklyn was September 12th and we had signed a lease for 
12 months that we were able to get out of after 10 months. But anyway, so moved to Sacramento. My husband was kind of Mr. Mom. And then I was working. Um, It was pretty hectic. We had another child a year later. And my husband ended up, um, he'd always wanted to be a teacher, so he got a teaching credential and started student teaching. And so life was just really hectic um, between you know, this job I had where I had always had supervisors and teachers, which I loved. I loved the work when there's people around. But suddenly, like, I'm the teacher (laughs) and I'm the supervisor. And I'm kind of, you know, so that was hard. It was actually very difficult. Um, But anyway, kind of got through it, um, developed confidence around that. Um... But life was hectic. I was the director of the training program, and so I had all these responsibilities, um, students and residents and fellows and a lot of patient care stuff. And then I was on committees, and I had research, and it was just, it was kind of silly. It was just like another example of me kind of losing touch and just getting so immersed in this wave around me, you know, and just kind of diving in. Everyone else is doing it or... I guess that's what I'm supposed to do. Um, But I was pretty frazzled. Um, You know, we had two kids, and it was hard. Um, Anyway, then I remember I was at at the airport, and I I had to go to Florida for this meeting, which I actually kind of liked traveling for work. I hated it because it was so hard to be, it was really super hard on my kids. But on the other hand, I had to go for work and it was only, and finally I would get like time to think on the plane. Like I would prepare for these plane trips and have a whole stack of books. And I was just so looking forward to just like time when I couldn't and didn't have to do anything else. And I remember being at the airport and I was thinking, you know, I could just walk away from this job. I could walk away from the whole thing. And it was just, I almost felt like I was floating. I was, it was such a feeling of freedom. And I was like, what would my life be like? You know, I could leave this job, all these responsibilities. I went into medicine because I like clinical work. I could just do clinical work somewhere. I could set my own schedule. And um, basically, once I started thinking like that, I couldn't go back. And actually, someone came up to me at the airport and said something like, you look really... um, what did they say? Inspired or something? They, they noticed like there was something about how I was, I don't know, seemed to be experiencing this time. And, um, but I was. And so anyway, I, I ended up leaving the job at UCB. I was there 10 years. Um, and we had a lot of born-again friends in our neighborhood. Our neighbors were all born-again people, it seemed. Not all, but a lot. Kind of trying to rope us into their stuff. Um, And I envied all these people who had these spiritual beliefs. Um, But I couldn't go along. I just, the born-again stuff, you know, I I could not swallow that. Um, And my good friend of mine was very Catholic, a friend from college who I spent a lot of time with in college and afterward. We were both in New York and Philadelphia at the same time. And 
I went to a lot of mass. She went to mass every Saturday, every Saturday or Sunday. I think she went on Saturdays actually, but um, I went with her more than a hundred times and a lot of people I knew were Catholic, but I couldn't, I couldn't do it. It just, it couldn't make it fit for me at all. So I envied people who had these beliefs, but I, and I was aware that I didn't have anything. Um, I remember hearing somebody talking about raising their kids and they had like a philosophy of raising their kids. And I didn't have a philosophy of raising my kids. I didn't never even had time to think, much less have a philosophy. And, you know, like, what are the choices? I don't know. I didn't have one. Um, and I was a pretty good parent when my kids were younger. I was a subpar parent when my kids were adolescents. And especially as one of my kids was having a really hard time, um, I was just more reactive. And it's a source of great sadness to me that I was not a better parent to the other kid during those years. Um, So meanwhile, let's see. So 2015 comes around, and my kids were at that point 11 and 14. Um, My sister lived in Michigan, and she said, you know, why don't you fly the girls out and you guys can go somewhere for a week. And I was like, yeah, we can do that. Um, And I had just been to Big Sur that spring. I took my girls during spring break and we had an amazing time. And so I started, I think I Googled places to stay in Big Sur and Tassajara came up. And I didn't know what Tassajara was. I knew Tassajara Bakery because when I lived in San Francisco, I used to like to sit there and drink tea for, for four hours and eat a piece of bread and nobody bothers you. And it was great. I, so I had really good associations with Tassajara Bakery, but I didn't know what Tassajara was. And they kind of, the person on the phone, there weren't many other reservations available. Person on the other end of the phone was kind of explaining to me, we're a monastery, um, you know, we have really good food, you can hike, there's hot springs. And, I, and they, they did say, I remember, no, your husband cannot bring his guitar. There's no music. You can't play music here. So I, we thought it was a little weird. But anyway, we went. Um, and we were not in a workshop or anything. We were just there for like five days or something. And we got there and some, someone showed us into the Zendo. And they did a little talk on, um, on kind of practices within the Zendo how to sit, you know, what to do. Um, And something about being in the Zendo, I kind of knew that I was going to be there again. Um, So just there's something that felt really um, right to me about being there that first 10 minutes in the Zendo. Like it was just a place that, was I was meant to be in. I really felt that very strongly. Um, and so we kind of sat in the morning. Uh, my husband sat in the morning. I sat in the evenings because I couldn't wake up. And But we, you know, it was... And, and, and when I was going into the Zendo, you know, reading the Tan, um, 
you know, I, I read the words on the ton and it really alarmed me, you know, that this birth is precious, this death is precious, or life is precious, don't waste it. And I felt like they were, this was talking directly to me. I mean, I was actually like, it almost made me panicky reading these words, but then I'd go and I'd sit. Um, but I knew that was right. And I remember thinking, I haven't even started living. How, you know, don't waste this life. I haven't even started it. I'm trying to get all this other stuff done first, you know. Um, so I came back and then I think I bought a bunch of books at the bookstore. Tried to read them. They didn't make much sense. Um, went back the next, oh, then I got tickets the next spring for my daughter and I to be in a um, wildflowers and birds workshop. And she got sick right beforehand. She got the flu. So I went by myself. Um, and it was amazing. Um, and let's see, what was I going to say about that? Oh, and so some, so I, I was, I sat both in the morning and the evening and I remember sitting in the morning and then I somehow got caught up in something happening after the sitting where people are bowing and it wasn't, and so I, was, I just went along with it. I did the bowing, figured there'd be three, ba- you know, one bow, then there's two, there's three, there's four, there's five, there's six. And then it was, I just thought it was weird. I just stopped counting. Um, then they were reciting the Heart Sutra, no eyes, no ears, no mind. I thought it was really weird. Um, but then I noticed, like, the people didn't seem weird. Like, you know, I kind of got to know them over lunch or whatever, and they seemed really not weird at all. Um, so I did not get the chanting. I, I didn't understand what the Heart Sutra meant. Um, not that I'm, you know, have such a great understanding now, but um, anyway, start, so I I did go back to Tassahara um, several times each summer for the next few years until the pandemic. <clears throat> um, oh, just to back up a little bit. Um, so poetry, yeah. So I during those years that it was really hectic and crazy, I didn't sit down and write poetry very much, but they would just come burbling out of me, like gurgling out of me. So I had, I would be at work and I'd think of something and I'd write it down and then I'd tear it off and put it in my bag. And I had a huge box of all these scraps, a lot written at stop signs. Um, and so I came up, I, it was more like I wanted to kind of, I didn't want to be writing this poetry. It wasn't that I wanted to or didn't. Anyway, it just came, came, kept gurgling up. Um, I ended up doing some writing workshops at Tassahara, which was really interesting. Um, and I just kind of felt like I didn't understand what Zen was about, but I did feel like the people at Tassahara were interested in the same questions that I was interested in. And I found it really super compelling being there. Um, it just felt very right to me. Everything about it felt right. Um, and so I ended up, um, well, just to backtrack on that, 
I was thinking about this over the weekend as I was thinking about what to say. And I was thinking about my work in those years. And so I was working, so I've always worked with kids who are very poor, um, families who have no resources, basically. I kind of made that decision early on. And, um, and very, very, very stressed out kids and families. And, um, and so at this point, I was kind of, as a psychiatrist, you're kind of head of the team, which is fine. Um, but to, to do the work, you have to kind of try to figure out like what's going on with this kid and this family at this time. And you have to do a formulation. You have to figure out like what's the, what are the biological factors? What are the predisposing factors? What are the psychological and the cultural and the factors? What are the familial factors and the precipitating and what are the strengths? And you have to put it together into a story that makes sense so that you can figure out how to make changes at the key points. And I worked on a team. I always worked on teams. And um, so I spent a lot of time formulating these cases, um, which you have to take a very careful history. And I kind of learned that it was so interesting. Like, you're always surprised. Like, no matter, you know, we get so much history and put it together so carefully, but there's always surprises that would come out. Um, And so it was very humbling like that, you know. And it kind of, these, most of the families I dealt with were in crisis or near crisis, And it kind of brings out the worst in people and the best in people. So I had this, you know, these 10 years that I was doing this work in the community, I was working for some community agencies. Um, This is kind of what occupied me, you know, a lot was, you know, like trying to understand how people move through life in different ways. There's tremendous suffering in these families that I was working with. But like I say, it was really inspiring, too, and really surprising um, and just very humbling. And so um, and it was hard to be the last word, like there was no backup beyond me. And I would try to cultivate backups, but they, it just never really was. So it was a lot. Of, I, I felt a very heavy responsibility. And I kind of came to... Um, rely on do no harm, which is the Hippocratic Oath, just first do no harm. And so that was my main, that was how I guided my own practice, by first do no harm. And it really, um, anyway, so, you know, and then there'll be a good outcome for a case and people want to say, oh, didn't we do a great job? You know, look how great this kid's doing now. And I would think, no, I don't know if we did. You know, we did our best, but who knows why he's doing great now? Who knows what factors out there clicked into place? And we'll never know. You know, we did our best, and we threw all the best stuff we could, and we tried to, you know, um, target the key things, and we didn't try to do no harm. And But you never know. And so in the same way, you know, I didn't always, I didn't really feel solely responsible if there was a, you know, the case took a bad turn. And the kid ended up in the hospital. You know, there are all these other factors. And so I realized, um, I was, as I was thinking about this over the weekend, that this is kind of like the um, pure precepts, this kind of what I had learned 
in, in my work, you know, first do no harm and then try to do all good and do it for the sake of others. And so I think that's kind of why um, Zen and Buddhism sort of made sense to me. Like I felt like, yeah, that's, that's right. I, I'm on board with that, you know, <laughs> or it, anyway. Um, so it was, yeah, so I think I should wrap up, but anyway, um, I was at a workshop at San Francisco Zen Center and I'm sorry, at Tassajara. And I was talking about, I was talking, oh, uh, Lori Sanaki was the poetry group leader. It was a women's poetry writing workshop. And I really liked her. And um, in fact, her stuff she said kept working its way into the poems I was writing then. And so I said, you know, I think I'm going to start going to Berkeley Zen Center. And she said, oh, well, you know, there's a place in Sacramento. There's really good people there. You should try it. And so I Googled it and I came here um, and I heard a couple of, uh, I think Reb Anderson came and Norman Fisher came for some Saturday things. And then it was announced that there was a, um, a session. And so I was able to join that, uh, Rahatsu. And um, as we were in Rahatsu the first night, just sitting all day, and then we sang the refuges and it was so beautiful, singing the refuges, that I just, I just knew I was gonna that this was a home kind of place for me. Like there was not, there was something so right about that. Um, so that was a, just like a turning point for me. Um, anyway, and so I'm gonna wrap up. But basically, um, so my plan had been to kind of I was I was gonna work forever. I, a lot of child psychiatrists do, and they, you just learn more and more. And I thought that's so cool. You know, I'd see these really old people working and that was kind of my plan. But then I started to, um, then I kind of decided a year and a half ago to retire. I was 58 and, um, and I do think it ties into my experience here in that, um, you know, like my earliest years, I was, you know, home was very unpredictable and kind of scary. And then there was a lot of depression. And then there was this intense work for many, many years. And so I was always kind of running on adrenaline. And, you know, I think I started to see, oh, you don't have to live that way. You don't have to live on adrenaline all the time. There's peaceful, open, you know, there can be openings. And then when I started to let myself kind of think about that, um, you know, and, the, and then I realized too that, you know, kind of working and working feels secure. You feel you have money coming in, you don't, you know, you can save money, all that. And then I, but I kind of come to realize that it's, it's not, nothing's secure, you know, nothing's promised. And, um, and so I, I retired when I was 58 and, um, anyway, and so I've been hanging around here and I guess that's all.
this one, Larry? And here's another one. I was just going to, it's not a long question. Um, I like when you're talking about the, the precept thing of like, uh, do no harm. Are there any, um, I noticed you brought in the thing with like child psychiatry of like the, like their inner lives and like change. Is there anything that um, you learned about from your own life as related to change and then that like looking at Buddhism, like a connection there or a sense of like um, that shed some light on something or even like actually the way I experience change is really different than, you know, what we talk about. Because I think what I kept hearing was like that idea of like impermanence, things constantly changing. So I was curious, like, is there anything um, that you want to say about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I just, um, I just feel pretty, well, in a sense, like limited in the way I can steer my life, um, but also very, like a strong sense of, like limited in, in the way in outcomes, but I feel like I have a much a strong sense of how I can manage my experience or direct it. Um, so kind of both powerful and humbling, you know? Thanks. Yeah. Sarah, did you want to say, speak? What would you like me to do with this? Thank you very much, Malia. I was just thinking about that ruhatsu. And I remember you come, I was Tenzo, and I remember you coming into the kitchen and offering me rice. Yes, I remember that too. Yes. Yeah. There's just something about that presence and that gift. I remember how joyful you were just working in the kitchen, Sarah, just like sheer joy. And yeah, I remember I I had this bag of rice, and I hate to waste anything, so I had... I had brought it and I said, it's supposed to be really good rice because my mom made a big deal about it. Yeah. And you're like, well, all rice is good rice, really. <laughs> and then you directed me to, um, to, to Dogen's um, instructions for the cook, which I read. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember that vividly. And we ate it that night. Did we? We did. Okay. <laughs> so the, you shared that with the community. Thank you so much. Oh, Karen Hamilton. Uh, oh. Oh, Jim. Uh, you must have to unmute yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Is that working? Is that working? Yep. Yep. I was. Um, I was. Um, wondering how you. How you. Counsel someone. Counsel someone. Who was, who was uh, working, uh, working with, with, uh, with depression? Uh, depression. How I, I how I would counsel someone? Yes. Yes. Based on your experience. I mean, I think it it's so there can be infinite scenarios. You know, it's so individual, and there's people have such unique strengths and motivations and um, so it would I think it really depends entirely on 
the situation and the resources available. But you're saying counseling specifically, like what kind of, would there be messages that I would impart? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what would be your, I don't know, we, what would be your compassionate uh, response to someone who came to you and working, saying you know, they would be subject to um, depression uh, frequently? I mean, so so clinically, I think that would depend on the particulars, but I think that um, I think that people do. I notice that people. It was kind of an interesting role um, because there's so much suffering, such intense suffering, and people really want to um, share it with you, parents and kids, and you know others, and and they're looking for something from you know they're looking for a bit of wisdom. You know, they're looking for, they're looking beyond clinical. They're looking for something beyond clinical. And you have to give, you know, so um, I do feel like people have to develop, psychiatrists have to develop a philosophy about life to share with them. You know, like a kid, ha I don't know. So I guess it would depend uniquely on the situation. Um, but I do think there's a, whole lot, Dora Lee, of course, could speak to this, but a whole lot of, you know, overlap with the spiritual that people are seeking at these times. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Thank you for your talk. I appreciate hearing your, you know, I've got some, you know, the New York connection and all these other things. And, um, did you write your Way Seeking Mind talk 20 hours ago? <laughs> that, no answer required. That's no answer required. I made the notes at about 4 p.m. today. <laughs> Took about an hour. You, you know, you said something that uh, struck a chord with me from, like, our, our Buddhist teaching uh, in your work, which was that uh, you do your best but there's so many factors that affect uh, how a person, you know, will respond uh, that um, you don't know exactly what, whether it was you that, you know, caused this uh, result or not. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and that you, therefore, and if it wasn't a good outcome, you didn't feel like you were solely responsible. And as you were saying that, I just thought of the whole Buddhist theme of interdependence, mm -hmm. you know. And so I just, it was, I found it very interesting. Mm -hmm. that did, you might not have known at that time that it was interdependence. But yeah, I, I didn't, but I, it's funny you say that because as I was writing my notes, I wrote interdependence. Like as I was thinking about these ways that I came to understand my work, um, and how much that resonated with Buddhist practice. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I don't know. There's so many sort of places that I heard as you told your journey where there was sort of like a little bit of a light going on, but not exactly, but you know, to all of us to work through our sort of basic lifelong patterns, it takes it takes a while 
to be able to see through the whole thing. But I'm so grateful to your sister that she said, I'll watch the kids. And then you've just found Hasahara. I, I mean, it just sort of appeared. And that seems like the way-seeking mind, in a way. Something just shows up. And then that, that began a whole different, you know, awakening for you. And, uh, and then to end up realizing that you can let go of trying so hard uh, mm-hmm. is really beautiful. And, and here you are. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember, too, when you came to Rohatsu and um, all of a sudden you said, I'll take all of the napkins and, and I'll wash them and iron them. And that was like kind of amazing. Like out of the blue, you were, you know, already, you know, becoming wholehearted in the practice. Thank you. So how is it being retired? <laughs> it's good. Yeah, I, I retired very early also, but I'm just interested. I mean, how did your... How, how have things changed? How, how do you sleep more? Do you write more? Do you sit more? I mean, how, how is it being retired? Um, I think I just like experience more. Even small things, I experience more. Um, just more aware, kind of. Every, I've just, uh, you know, I, I remember when I was working I was in a bookstore once, and there was this little tiny book by the cash register that said, 100 things you can do to increase mindfulness. And I flipped it open, and it said, every time you walk through a doorway, be aware that you're walking through the doorway. And so I I thought, okay, I'm going to try this. And I went to work, which was super stressful for me. And then I'd have a moment, you know, family would leave, have three minutes. And so I think, okay, every time you walk through a doorway, think of that. And then I'd head out to the bathroom or something, and I never once even thought about one doorway. <laughs> I couldn't even do it for like 15 seconds. Um, so yeah, I kind of feel like I can process things more. And um, I don't know, just, yeah, I guess that would be Did it. Do you want to say anything about your Japan trip? Yeah, and I've been able to do stuff like that. Like I went to Green Gulch in the fall for two months, and um, and then I went to Japan recently, and I'll get to go to Tassajara for um, <clears throat> three weeks for a study period or for an um, intensive this summer. So, yeah, I have that kind of freedom. But, yeah, Japan trip was, was amazing, actually. Um, I went with my younger daughter, and um, it was great to be there with her and doing these things with her. Um, We met a lot of family that I didn't even know I had, several cousins and a lot of second cousins and whatnot. Um, Went to a lot of temples. There was just like a lot of warmth in some of these temples that was really beautiful. yeah, I mean, I could. I have so much to say about that. So. Yeah. Thanks for your talk. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I just want to thank you. That's really impressive. Your whole life is just fascinating and impressive, and I related to some of it. And just the fact I'm being a 
former, well, being a New Yorker, that you worked at Bellevue, it's like, whoa, that is heavy. But um, when you mentioned about travel and how one gets lit up and talk about antidepressant, that's what I found travel was. And I traveled a bunch of times alone in Europe, and, I, and that was my antidepressant. But just, I love your moment in the airport. That was amazing <laughs> and that somebody saw that. So anyway, thanks for your humbleness and everything. Thanks for your talk. Oh, thank you. Was it a quick question? Um, two quick questions. One, I'm curious, did you learn any Japanese as a kid growing up, and could you remember when you went to Japan? Just phrases and no. <laughs> Uh, second question is: I'm curious, where along your journey you were you developed like a daily sitting practice? Was it prior to Valley Streams? Were you inspired to start sitting daily prior to coming here, or is it once you came here where it kind of really sit in? Set Honestly, in? during the pandemic mm-hmm. was when I started sitting regularly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would try to sit, and I'd see a book on the shelf, and I'd get up and pull it off, and yeah. It, I did not have a very good sitting practice at home, um, but I like to sit at other places, you know, at Tassajara and here. So yeah, not tar- till during the pandemic did I have my own practice. Thank you. It was a very nice talk. Thank you very much. Thank you.